What's good, ARC? Everybody all right this morning? Welcome, welcome, welcome as we prepare to uh, continue in worship and hear God's word. Uh, on behalf, again, of the church family, I want to welcome those of you who are visiting with us this morning. Uh, I'm Pastor T, one of the four pastors, along with pa- Pastor Babatunde, whom you met, uh, Pastor Tim, and Pastor Dennis. Uh, thank you for praising God together with us. Uh, before we get into God's Word, and if you want to go ahead and turn there, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2. Before we get into God's Word, I've asked Ashley Davenport to come and say a word about a study and discussion that she's leading for us uh, on Sunday mornings in follow-up to our Embracing the Mission series, which we began the, the week with. We had our first session this morning. It's a fantastic session this morning. Y'all welcome Ashley. Come share. Good morning. Okay, so our class is a follow-up to the mission series, Pop Quiz, whose responsibility is the mission of ARC? Every believer or mine. And so we're trying to make it personal. That's what we talked about this morning. Next week, we are going to be doing practicals of how do I share my faith? What is the gospel? What are some practical ways I can share? And you might be thinking, I already know how to do that. Great, we need you to come help those of us who might struggle or might need some more practice. And so we'll be here at 9 a.m., but you should come at 8.15 for prayer. And then at 9 a.m., we will be practicing how do I share my faith, what does that look like, and getting some reps in. So that's what we'll be doing next week. We will be continuing this class for five weeks total. And so we'll have three weeks after that, but would love to see you at 9 a.m. The goal is to give you practical tools to actually carry out the mission of our church. Amen? Amen. All right, thanks. Amen. Thanks, Ash. Appreciate you. Give it up. And so we come to one of my favorite points in the service. Anybody know what that is? Bible memory. There we go. There we go. We've been memorizing 1 Peter, and we've made our way up to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Uh, last week, we were in verses 11 and 12. Did anybody remember last week's verses? Anybody memorize those? Come on, Anna. Y'all encourage Anna. Come on. Come on. There we go. Come on now. Come on now. That's what's up. That's what's up. It's the attitude for me. I love it. I love it. I love it. Now, now I'm going to put you on the spot for just a, a second or two, if, you, if you'll allow me. Um, so, seriously, I, I love the, the passion in that, right? Um, so, do you, like, speak publicly for a living, or do you do this all the time, or, or what? Okay. <laughs> That's your speaker voice. But now, is that, like, who you are as a person? Okay. That's what's up. That's what's up. Yeah. No, I, and she hits on something really important, right? If you, if you ever want to learn God's word, then accept the opportunity to teach it, right? And then put the passion in it. It does hit differently. You, you hear it exegetically. You feel it as if the author might be making the, the, the comment, et cetera. So I love the, the dramatic reading of scripture. If any of you have listened to Max McLean, uh, before read the scripture, wonderful voice, almost as good as Baba Tunde's, uh, you know, and, and he reads it with this dramatic exegetical approach. So thank you for blessing us that way, sister. We appreciate you. It, anybody else this morning? Any part of First Peter chapter one or chapter two or all of it? Anybody? Anybody? Going once? Going twice? Soul. Well, let's let's pray to hear God's word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we do ask this morning that you would help us to not only understand your word, but to feel your word, to feel it searching our hearts, to feel it healing our hurts, to feel and sense it instructing our minds, Lord, that we would feel changed 
by your word. We pray that you'd give us strength from your scripture. We pray that your joy would become our joy and, and, and our strength this morning. We pray that you give us hope. Pray that you would give us faith. We pray that you would stir us up to love and good deeds. We come to your word because it's in your word that you show us yourself. So let us see you this morning. Be high and lifted up and draw people to yourself, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I know none of y'all are thinking about this this morning. Hadn't crossed your mind. You haven't even seen it on the news or paid attention to the reports. But this year is an election year. <laughs> y'all ain't worried about it. Y'all ain't thinking about it. Y'all not reflecting on the craziness of the last 10 years or 15 years. I know, you're just going on confident as always. That's a joke. Most of us, if we've been paying any attention at all, maybe have a little bit of hesitation and trepidation, or we're like flabbergasted, we're dumbstruck that we are where we are as a country, that we have the choices that we have as a, as a country, that we are perhaps entering into a, another ride on the, on the crazy cycle. It's so weird that the normal stuff that used to bother us, like politicians lying, that doesn't even raise an eyebrow anymore. I mean, it's, it's gotten kind of crazy out there. And so maybe we take some comfort in what the Bible tells us about who we are, that we are exiles and sojourners, that we are pilgrims passing through, and that this world is not our home. Maybe that creates for us some, some psychological and emotional distance from the craziness of something like an election year. But we're still left with the question, how should we as exiles relate to human institutions like government? What are our responsibilities to government? What should be the posture of our hearts? Should we say, hey, this world is passing away, heaven is my home, Jesus is coming soon, I don't even care, let me check out. Or, or should we say, no, actually, this is the country of my birth or the country of my choice. Um, this, is, this is where I, I aim to be a citizen or, or make my living, and so let me be a patriot. Let me go all in. What should we do between indifference and idolatry? How should we negotiate our relationship with government and behind government, more importantly, authority. What's the Christian's responsibility? Well, we continue our series this morning in 1 Peter. We have titled this Holiness in a Hostile World because that seems to be Peter's concern, to encourage holiness among these Christians scattered throughout Asia uh, and around the known world at the time, uh, and, and, a, and a group of people who are facing the hostility of a world that doesn't love Christ and doesn't love them, a hostility of a world that doesn't understand their religious faith or necessarily respect it, people who are being persecuted and jailed and, and even killed. Peter is saying, well, how do you go on in holiness when you live in a context like that, and now he's come to sit, consider the questions of authority and government. Look with me in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. 1 Peter 2, verses 13 to 15. The apostle Peter writes there, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. As we come to this, I want us to sort of understand four things as those who are exiles, pilgrims, sojourners, those of us who are Christians. I want us to understand four things about authority and government. Number one is this that it is God who ordains human authority. It's God who ordains human authority. We'll see that in verse 13. 
Number two, we, come, we need to understand that God uses human governments. That God uses human governments, as inferred in verses 13 and 14. And then number three, that God wants just societies. That God wants just societies, verse 14. And then finally in verse 15, that God silences the church's opponents. That God silences the church's opponents. As I, we work through this, I pray that God would give us discernment and careful thinking uh, so that we might be faithful witnesses, again, in the midst of our own context and the craziness that's sure to come, if not this year, in future years, uh, in American government and politics. Look with me again, 1 Peter 2, verses 13 to 15. Be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. I see this first thing. God ordains human authority. That's right there at the beginning of the verse where Peter says, um, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Now, be subject means to submit. comes from a Greek word used of a military officer who ordered himself under the command of his leading officer. It means to fall beneath or to fall behind, to order yourself in rank behind the one who's leading you. So when we are submissive to something, we, we are ordered behind it. But more than that, when we're submissive to something, we have a, a certain attitude of heart. We have a certain posture. We, and that attitude is respect and honor. So Peter doesn't mean here grudgingly fall in line with human authority or human institutions. Peter, Peter means honor it, respect it, sort of posture your heart toward it with a certain kind of respect called submission. Now notice there, he says that we are to do that as Christians, as exiles, we are to do that with every human institution. With every human institution. An institution is a, is a group or an organization that has a, a purpose in society, and it becomes an institution in part by the, the customs, the laws, the practices that it, it uses to pursue that purpose. And social scientists tell us that there are five sort of basic or fundamental institutions uh, in human society. There's the family, there's government, there is uh, the economy, there is religion, and education. Now, those are five human institutions that are basic to every human society. And the interesting thing is, as we work through 1 Peter, Peter now is going to begin to work through at least four of those institutions. In our next verse, verses 13 and 14, he's going to sort of put on the table the institution of government. Uh, he'll, he'll pick up in verse 18 when he addresses slaves and masters, he's addressing the economic arrangement uh, of his day. He's addressing the economy. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, he'll come to the institution of family. And in chapter 5, the opening verses, in particular verse 5, he'll come to the institution of the church as he addresses elders and, 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 and the role of elders in the church. So the Bible has a regard for the institutions of society. And it's calling us to have this posture and this practice of submitting to those institutions, every one of them, each and every one of them. Now, it tells us to do that, notice, for the Lord's sake. What does Peter mean there? Well, let's just make some obvious observations. We're not necessarily, ultimately, submitting to the institutions for the institution's sake. We, we don't do that for, ultimately, the human leader's sake. We, we don't submit to the institutions out of a kind of party loyalty, a kind of tribalism, right? Peter is calling us to do this, actually, as Christians, as an act of Christian worship. We, we do this for the Lord's sake because 
as we'll see, it's God who ordains human authority. We do this for the Lord's sake because to resist that authority is to resist God. And we do this for the Lord's sake because as we honor and submit to human authority, we are demonstrating the goodness of God who himself has ordered society this way. So when we come to think about this election cycle, for example, or we come to think about our next trip to the DMV, right? Are we approaching it with the heart and minds of people who worship the Lord? Are we approaching it asking ourselves, how do I engage this institution for the sake of my Savior? How am I going to engage this worker at DMV giving me all this attitude? Am I going to match that energy? Or am I going to represent the Lord in how I submit to and engage with this human institution? That's what Peter is encouraging upon us, is that our, our minds are absorbed not with the politics of the day necessarily, not with the sort of arguments about government or other forms of authority necessarily, not necessarily with arguments about, say, family and the structure of family and who can be family and all those things. Those are important things to discuss and to work on, but most fundamentally, do we come to these institutions thinking about the Lord and how we reflect the goodness of the Lord in those institutions? When Peter points to institutions, He is implicitly pointing to something behind or inside the institution, and that's authority. Institutions can't function, they can't fulfill their purpose if they don't have authority. Authority is the right and the ability to command or to govern, to carry out a purpose. Authority is related to power, but it's not the same thing as power. Right? So a person can have, a po- can have power but not have authority. I might have power to break into your house and eat whatever I want out of your refrigerator. But I don't live there. I don't pay rent there. I didn't buy those groceries. That was not an authority that I had. I didn't have the right to do it even though I had the ability or the power to do it. With proper authority, legitimate authority, those two things go together, the ability and the right to exercise command or control. God has placed authority in institutions for our good. I'll give you another example, the difference between authority and power. Some of you are social media influencers, like Peter Noble. Yeah, he's an influencer. Influencers are, are these folks who excuse me, not like Peter, seem to me don't have real jobs. I'm just saying, and they make more than most of us, right, if they really influence us. Their whole thing is influence or power, getting you and I to buy this product or to follow this trend or to behave in a certain way. They, they exercise a certain kind of power, though they have no influence. They don't, or, or authority, excuse me, they don't have authority over your family budget. They didn't make the money that comes into your household, and, and they don't decide the budget, and they don't pay your bills. That's, that's not, if they were to come over to your house and say, hi, I'm Susie Influencer. I came here to tell you that you need to buy this Maserati. Well, lady... Write the check, right? But you don't have any authority here, right? So authority and power are not the same thing. They are related. And what Peter is talking about here is legitimate institutional authority that we should submit to it. Here's the the important theological principle that we need to hold on to in this first point. We find it in Romans chapter 13, verse 1. The Apostle Paul is talking about the same thing that Peter is talking about in his letter. Notice what the Apostle Paul says. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, right? So same thing that Peter has said. But then Paul gives the explanation. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, we we need to, ooh, we need to, We need to get that, get a grip on that, right? 
that in every institution is authority, and every authority that exists exists by the ordination, by the command, by the plan of God. So the authority that parents have in the family, God put that there. The, the authority that government leaders have in the government, God put that there. The authority that um, is exercised by banks and other institutions in the economy, God put that there. Choose your institution, choose your sort of area of human activity, wherever there his authority is the fingerprint of God. He has placed that there for our good. Now, you might be someone who would have a hard time with conversations about authority because you instinctively distrust authority. And it may be that you, you, you are well aware of abuses of authority and, and things of that sort, and so you have come to distrust it. Or you may be someone who so values your notion of freedom that you see authority and freedom as enemies to each other. Freedom is actually another kind of authority, right? It's the authority the individual has to make decisions for themselves. You can never escape authority. And authority is meant for our good. It can be abused. It can be twisted. But God's design is that loving, proper authority and submission to it would lead to our flourishing. And put it another way. Not only is God the one who has ordained authority and placed it in institutions, but God has actually made us as human beings, beings, that are most human, we are most ourselves, when we embrace and submit to and exercise authority. Remember the creation, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. We are made how? In the image and likeness of God. And do you remember what's said next there? That we then are given this purpose, this authority, to exercise dominion over the creation. At our very creation, in our very being, in our calling to this office of image bearer, God has placed in humanity this, this authority. So to rebel against authority is to rebel against God and to rebel against our making. Right? To try to live without authority is to live contrary to what it means to be fully human. Submission to authority, the embracing of it, the, ex the exercising of it is actually when we flourish, when we experience the good life that God has intended for us. If you encounter authority, you encounter the work of God. You encounter the presence of God. In fact, we live in a world where the escape of authority is impossible. One writer put it this way. Authority is found everywhere there are human beings, and most visibly insofar as they live together in community. Even the most virtuous and community-minded of people do not cooperate spontaneously and need, at the very least, an overarching or an overall coordinating authority, if not necessarily one with coercive power. You, you see what he's saying. The writer is saying, no, Rodney King, we can't just all get along. That ain't how it works. Even the best of us don't spontaneously do what's good and right for everybody. We, we need some kind of overarching uh, authority or institution to help us to be our best selves in community. This is actually a need for us. And authority is so present, you can't escape it. Let me, let me give you an example. Try walking across the street without encountering authority. The lines that are painted in the middle of the street and the street signs that say stop or the street lights that give you a signal to go, these are all reflections of authority, of an agency, a, a government who has put into the very line on the road or the sign commands that guide and control our behavior. Or, or imagine you're a student, you're a college student, it's Wednesday, uh, you're up to go to class, you walk across the campus, you go to your classroom, you got to say an English class on Shakespeare, and uh, the professor, somebody was in the class before, so 
chairs have been taken out of the room. The professor asks you and a couple other students to, to grab three chairs and to bring them in the classroom, and so you do. And then you sit and you hear a lecture on Shakespeare. Um, and after that class, you get up and, because you only have one class on Wednesday, you head over to the food hall and you go to the food hall and you order something to eat. You sit down with your friends, you kick it for like five hours in the food hall uh, and you eat your lunch. And after you eat your lunch, you swing by the student government offices because you are uh, vice president of your class and you participate in some decision that has to be made there. Then you make it back to your dorm about seven o'clock. Um, you're going to call your parents real quick before you go back to the food hall. Uh, and so you call your mom and dad and you say, hey, I knew I was going to come home this weekend, but actually I'm going to, you know, I'm doing this thing. I'm volunteering with this organization, the community. It's not going to be this weekend. It's going to be two weekends away. Mom and dad said, cool, we look forward to seeing you, etc." How many forms of authority did you just interact with? From the teacher, the professor, who could ask you to go get chairs and bring them into the classroom, to sitting under the expertise authority of that professor as he lectured to you or she lectured to you on Shakespeare, to going to the lunch hall at the appointed times when it's open, somebody made that decision, someone in authority, and ordering food and receiving food and, and back behind the counter is a whole hierarchy of, of managers and line cooks and, and folks who are at the counter taking orders to swinging by the student government office and casting your vote for whatever policy the students are thinking about, to calling your parents, your parental authority, right? And negotiating with them their parental authority as it interacts with your individual authority to decide when you were going to come home. Society is washed with authority. And to rebel against it is to rebel against community and to rebel against our own personhood and rebel against God himself. So to be deeply human is to embrace this. We talked last week about our warfare against the flesh. One evidence that that warfare is going on, beloved, again, is our almost instinctive tendency to bristle and brace and pull back from authority. It's funny how we suspect it in the hands of others while we want it for ourselves. We, we resist the authority of, of legitimate institutions while we tend to use it for selfish purposes. That's our flesh at war. But that was not God's design. The good use of authority was meant to reflect God's own character. And legitimate authority used well leads to blessing and flourishing. So let me give you some real quick applications for what might feel like abstract conversation. Real quickly, real quick applications. Children, children, obey your parents. They are God's authority placed in your life for your blessing. And I'm not just talking to the little children. You still got parents you still should honor them. Honor your parents. Workers, those of you who have a job, those of you who are looking for jobs, obey your bosses. Obey your bosses. Yes, that boss. No, I don't know what they're like. But they have authority in your workplace. And God has established that authority. Your obedience to the legitimate instructions of your boss. And no, you don't always get to decide what's legitimate. Your obedience to the legitimate instructions of your boss, that submission to authority pleases God. You're called to that. It is for your blessing. Citizens. All of us who are citizens or aspiring citizens, honor your government officials. Submit to them. Pray for them. Obey them. As long as what they instruct is not contrary to Scripture, is not sin, does not violate the commands of God, what we owe to government, let everyone be subject to the ruling authorities. Let everyone be subject to their leaders. Simple applications straight out of the Bible. If you would, want, if you would flourish in life, if I would flourish in life, we got to learn to submit to authority. So what's your attitude toward human institutions and the authority that they hold? 
Did you know that our attitude toward authority reflects our attitude toward God and his rule? If you hadn't thought about that before, maybe make that a lunchtime discussion. Unpack that with some friends or someone that you met here. How does our attitude toward authority reflect our attitude toward the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth? Second point. God uses human government. He's not only ordained authority, but he uses human government. That's implied in the phrase there in the middle of verse 13 into the first part of verse 14, where he says, submit to every human authority. Then he specifies whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to their governors who they've sent. So now Peter has moved from human institutions generally in verse 13, first part of verse 13. Now he's come to talk about one of the five basic institutions, government. We know that because he's referring to the emperor as supreme and to their governors. Referring to the emperor and the governors really is a way of referring to levels of government. Peter lived in an empire under the Roman Empire. An empire is a, is a, is a government basically that includes lots of countries, includes multiple countries, but over which is one supreme ruler, an emperor or perhaps, a, a, say in the case of Rome, the Roman Senate, right? That's the one government that oversees all the other governments, and they would have the, the emperor as supreme, and then they would have governors in the various countries that are included in that empire. So when Peter refers to both the emperor and the governors, in, in a sense, he's, he's referring to the levels of government. We might talk about federal government versus state and local government, right? So it's not a situation where we can go, okay, you know what, I'm going to submit to my mayor because I'm closer to him. I know him. I voted for him. But, you know, the presidency and all that good stuff, that's way over there. I'm not, we can't do that. And we can't do the opposite. Well, it's the federal government that really matters. These local dudes, they, you know, they ain't doing nothing. I ain't messing with them. No, every level of government is meant to receive the same level of submission and honor from God's people. As we said in Romans 13:1, all government is authority is ordained by God. And, that, and that, that applies to every form of government, beloved. Track this with me now. As I said, Peter's in an empire. Right? It applies to empires, it applies to kingdoms, it applies to democracies, it applies to communist governments. <gasps> Socialist governments? No. Every authority is ordained by God. Every government is established by God. And the Bible does not teach that American-style democracy is the biblical form of government. There are no democracies in the Bible. Nobody's voting for the emperor. The emperor is there as a matter of power and of family lineage and descent, right? There's not one single democracy in the whole of the Bible. And I stress that only because I think American civil religion, which is different from Christianity, would have us baptize the flag and have us baptize democracy as somehow God's unique form of government that pleases him. It's not true, beloved. We begin to think that way. We're on our way to idolizing our government, right? What we find in the Bible is that God works in and uses all forms of human governments and all types of, of human leaders. Let me give you three examples. God uses Cyrus and the Persian Empire to send Ezra and Nehemiah back to Jerusalem to, build, to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the city. Ezra, Cyrus had, uh, and his predecessors had, had conquered Israel, had carried them off into captivity. They were not... God-fearing, a God-fearing empire by any means, and yet God used them to accomplish his purposes for his people. Or think of Artaxerxes. We find him in the book of Esther. We find him in the book of Esther tripping, don't we? He had a six-month-long party, right, and called his wife into the room to parade his wife before his drunk friends, and, and his wife, his first wife said, I ain't doing it. So he banned her and had a, had, a, had a beauty pageant to find another queen, picks Esther. It's this nut that God uses to protect the Jews from genocide and anti-Semitism in the book of Esther. God uses human government. Or think of Pharaoh in the Exodus. 
And you say, well, how did God use Pharaoh? Pharaoh was trying to enslave the people. Pharaoh was trying to keep the people in Egypt. God used Pharaoh to show us the difference between what it looks like when he softens a heart in mercy and he hardens a heart in judgment. Pharaoh, he hardened. His people, he softened and saved. So whether it's to make a spiritual point the way he does with Pharaoh or whether it's to provide for his people the way he does with uh, Artaxerxes and Cyrus, God is at work in human government accomplishing his purposes. And the challenge for us is to believe that, to act with faith as we encounter the craziness of things like American political elections. Because you can look at it and be like, "Uh, God ain't in that. God ain't in that. That's crazy. And it's crazy because people on both sides say the same thing. They're looking at different things, and each like, no, God ain't in that. God ain't in that. That ain't God. That ain't God. And then Christians, we fall in line with the parties. We start sounding like, that ain't God. That ain't God. That ain't God. That ain't God. Hold on. God established this whole thing. There's no authority that exists that God didn't ordain. And God works through human governments. And he uses human government, governments to accomplish his purposes. So there are a couple of mental mistakes that we have to avoid when we think about our, our responsibility in these crazy political times. Number one, we've got we to avoid slavish obedience. We've got to avoid slavish obedience. Slavish obedience says something like this. Well, God ordains all authority and government, so therefore, government is almost always right in what it says or does. Well, that's a false conclusion from a true premise. God has ordained it, but that doesn't mean it's always right. Or we might, we might need to avoid the mistake of a kind of rebellious anarchy. And that, that person thinks something like this. Well, government gets it wrong sometimes, sometimes seriously wrong, um, that God must not be in it. That's what we were talking about before. So, so therefore, I'm not going to submit to it. I'm not going to comply with it. Each of these positions has half the truth, but not the whole truth. And anytime you have a half truth, between it be a, a whole truth, you got you got an untruth, Right? God does establish government, and government sometimes gets it wrong. So thoughtful Christians must stand in this tension. Must stand in this tension. We we cannot overthrow the government because God ordains it. Must submit to it instead. But in America, at least, in God's ordination and God's providence, we have the right to do things like vote, and protest in civil disobedience, right? So, so we must submit, but we can also peacefully protest, and we can vote, and we can act in nonviolent ways to try and shape and influence and inform our government toward righteousness. There's a, there's a world of difference between civil disobedience, right, and insurrection or anarchy. One makes government and society better at using authority. The other destroys government and society by rebelling against authority. And we see a dazzling, we've seen a dazzling example of people getting this confused in something like the January 6th insurrection. You know, breaking into congressional buildings and doing all manner of wild things in the frenzy of the mob, that is not submission to authority. That is not how you exercise authority as a citizenry in a country that allows things like voting and peaceful protests. But neither is rioting in the streets and burning down um, personal property or burning up police stations. That kind of rebellion is not how you submit to authority and not how you use authority and not how you bend it toward righteousness. There will be places where we have to disobey unrighteous laws. We're never compelled by the Bible or by God to submit to evil. But we'll have to do it in a way that reflects the character of Christ. Think, for example, of the Egyptian midwives. Uh, What's Mishpah and and Shua. Yeah. 
They get this law from Pharaoh, kill all the children beneath a certain age. And the midwives are like, we're not doing that. And so they just quietly continue to disobey that unrighteous law, saving the kids that they can, and God uses them to bring a Moses into the world. They didn't go storm Pharaoh's gates. They didn't write pamphlets calling for the overthrow of the monarchy. They just did what was right where they were. Or think of Daniel. Daniel gets this law. You got to bow down to this statue of the king. Right? Daniel said, you know what? Let me open my window so everybody can see me praying to God. Right? I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to assassinate the king. I'm not trying to take over. Right? I'm just, I'm just going to do what's right in God's sight and trust God. Think of Mordecai and Esther, who we referred to a moment ago. Here, he learns of a plot, Mordecai does, learns of an actual assassination plot to kill Artaxerxes. Mordecai is there, someone who's been captured by this enemy state. He's in exile there. He's there under he's sort of foreign occupation, if you will. Um, what does he do? He didn't go, well, yo, that's right. If they do that, then we got a chance to seize the government, take power, and, and, and exercise our own authority. Mordecai actually saves the emperor's life. Or think of Paul, the great apostle, arrested, been taken to trial. One of his arrests was struck by a Roman soldier. And Paul said, hold up now. You, you dare strike a Roman citizen? And the soldier is like, how you get to be a Roman citizen? You know, I, it cost me a lot of money to get my citizenship. Paul said, I was born a citizen. The Roman soldier steps back. So he, he uses his civil rights as a, a Roman citizen to protect himself. But he doesn't call for the overthrow of Rome. He doesn't call for the, for the firing of the Roman soldier. He just does what is right, right where he was. And that's what we're called to do. As we submit to human authority, we're called to remember that God uses government to accomplish his will and that our proper response to government, submitting to its authority and trying to better it in its use of authority, that is part of what God uses to bless his people and to bless society. So for the Lord's sake, we've got to approach government with faith and hope. A couple of quick applications. We should support our governments at, at every level, the federal level, the local level, etc. This is why often when you hear pastoral prayers here, we pray for those in government, we pray for those who are in authority over us because 1 Timothy 2 instructs us to do that. That's one way we can support uh, our government institutions. Number two, we've we got to reject as Christian people, we've got to reject politicians who undermine, undermine and abuse government institutions and authority. Our institutions have perhaps never been more undermined in these last 10 years, 12 years, than perhaps since the 1960s or so. Just the way in which our institutions were assaulted, from the FBI to the Department of Justice to any other institution that was attempting to hold people accountable, such that right now, what we face as a country is deep suspicion and fear of our institutions, where God has placed his authority for our good. We, we have to redeem those institutions. We have to redeem our view of those institutions so that they function the way they're meant to function for the blessing of society, which means some of us should run for public office. Yes, some of us should run for public office. And some of us should work as civil servants. That's a noble thing to do, a good thing to do, a good calling to heed. God uses government. And as I said before, we should pray for those in authority over us, as 1 Timothy 2 commands. We should not turn a blind eye. We should participate at every level. It may be the case, again, that our attitude toward government reveals the level of faith and hope that we have when it comes to God's working in society. Which brings us to number three. God wants just societies. We see this again inferred in uh, that phrase at the end of verse 14. 
He sends governors and emperors, notice, uh, excuse me, emperors send governors, notice, to punish those who are good and to praise, or excuse me, (laughs) punish those who are evil, who do evil, and to praise those who do good. That's a basic sort of definition of justice and how justice is meant to work. It's meant to correct and restrain evil, and it's meant to promote and praise good. And the Bible teaches that government has these two basic functions, right? So in all of our debates about how big government should be, how little government should be, whether government should do this or government should do that, those are fine debates. But, but at the very bottom, fundamentally, what the Bible says is government has to be big enough and efficient enough to do these two things, to restrain evil and promote good. And when it does that, it encourages virtue in its people. It grows its people in the proper use of authority. Now, this phrase here, notice, assumes that people can act freely to choose to do either evil or to do good. They're not forced either way. So a legitimate government reserves that kind of freedom for people to act and choose and not to be coerced against their will. But it also assumes that there should be consequences for the actions. Right? If we do evil, the consequence should be punishment. If we do good, the consequence should be reward. So when a government is acting according to God's plan, that government is encouraging this kind of virtue. The threat of punishment and the promise of reward, it tends to foster justice in society and to foster the habits of heart and mind and life in its people that promote justice. We need government for this. We need our government to be legitimate in its use of authority to accomplish this. So we need to come to this basic bedrock function of government. We need to take that seriously. It's the foundation for the rule of law. It's the antibiotic that cures lawlessness. We need to see as Christians this aspect of government as holy. God has ordained this. This is the purpose of government. And the people who exercise this purpose, the governors, the the mayors, the leaders, who, who exercise this ability to punish evil and to reward good, they are in fact called in the Bible ministers of God. Look with me at Romans chapter 13, verses 2 to 5. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. You see what Paul is saying here. Government has this sword. And those who hold this sword are actually ministers of God. And when they properly exercise authority, notice it's not God's wrath or their wrath that they are pouring out. It's God's wrath that they are pouring out. We were speeding and got pulled over. We saw the blue lights and our hearts jumped. We hoped that he would pass us and catch somebody else. But he doesn't. He pulls over behind us. Lights are on. Maybe he can get the honk honk. So we pull over, and he walks up, takes our license, goes back to his car, does a little check, comes back to our car, gives us the pink ticket. Have you ever thought of that as God's wrath being shown in that moment? It's not his ultimate wrath. It's not the worst form of his wrath because most of us can pay the ticket. But maybe it was God just sort of tapping us on the shoulder, reminding us through the authority of a police officer who legitimately pulled us over and gave us a ticket for doing something wrong. Hey, hey, hey. I see you. I know when you're not submitting to government authority, 
do you remember that that means you're not submitting to me? And do you remember that the persons who don't submit to me incur my wrath? And in so many other ways, we, incur, we encounter government authority, we get corrected, we get sanctioned, maybe we get sentenced, and God is just telling us these are short commercials for a wrath that's coming that we need to escape. We need to take this seriously. I wonder if we would have less crime if people realize that being legitimately arrested, tried, and sentenced expresses God's wrath. Then perhaps we see more clearly that submission to authority keeps us from God's judgment. And notice what it says in Romans 13, 5, it, it keeps a clean conscience. So not only do human authorities not judge us, but the little judge in our own head doesn't judge us. And God doesn't judge us. We would have a clean conscience. We ought to be submissive to authority. And this is important, I think, for people, those of us who care about justice. It's important for us to think about. Notice here, God did not leave the achievement of justice to the goodwill of sinners. Justice will not be achieved by everybody just doing what's right. A just society requires just institutions. It requires an organization bigger than the individual because sometimes people will need to be corrected by a power bigger than the individual. God uses government to do that. God's answer to our call for justice, in part, is human authority embodied in institutions like human government. So before we throw away government as the answer to our call for justice, before we throw it away as unnecessary and corrupt, we better ask ourselves if our anarchy fits with God's plans in the Bible. We better ask ourselves if we are more certain that, that our confused ideas about how the world should operate is actually more reliable than God's very clear work in ordaining every institution and giving it authority. Are we convinced that the mess we make will actually produce better outcomes than what God has established? I think not. So instead of overthrowing governments and resisting them, we should become players in them. We should participate as citizens. We should pursue careers as civil servants. We should run for elections. We should pay for Thierry Chinko in Texas running for U.S. Senate. All right? We should pray for all our elected officials. So only when we participate can we bend the government toward its core purpose, justice through punishing evil, and rewarding good. Which brings us to our last point. Notice now, God silences the church's opponents. God ordains every authority. He uses human government. He wants a just society. He is pursuing that justice society through, through government, and he is pursuing that just society and the protection of his own reputation and the protection of the church and the gospel through the submission of his people to government. This is what verse 15 teaches us. It writes there, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So government exists to reward those who do good. Peter says now, make sure that you are those people, that you are doing good. And in fact, Peter says, this is God's will for your life. Christians always want to know, what's God's will for my life? Trying to figure that out. God sometimes takes a yellow highlighter and he highlights his will for us in the Bible. That's what that phrase is. This is God's will. That's God highlighting in, in glorious divine yellow. Here it is right here. This is my will for your life. Do good. Submit to human authority. Submit to human institutions. Uphold them when they exercise their authority properly. That's part of the good works that God has prepared for us to walk in. That's what he wills for us. That's what he wants for us. That's what he commands of us, that we would always be doing good. Paul writes to um, Titus, and he says in Titus 3.15, Titus 3.8, he says, command and insist that our people do good works. And here, Peter gives us one of the purposes. That we do these good works, why? 
that by doing them, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. We're going to shut some mouths if we get busy about doing good. If we get busy about doing job fairs to bless our neighbors and connect people to employment. If we get busy about learning how to disciple others and equip others and to, to share our faith in that way. If we get busy about uh, giving a, a cup of sugar to our, our neighbor when they knock on the door in a pinch, say, I got a cake I'm working on, I ain't got no sugar. And we, yo, here, bless it. Here, let me come over here and, and taste the icing with you. You know, if we get, if we get, maybe that's just me. If we get busy about doing good, we're going to shut some mouths. Particularly the mouths, notice there, of ignorant folk, of ignorant, foolish folk. And there's a whole lot of them. And they take up a lot of airtime in our political discourse. It's a lot of folk spewing ignorance because they're foolish. They got radio talk shows, they got blogs, they got podcasts, they're writing books, they're on television stations. Just 24 hours of nonsense. He's like, well, how do you counter that if you're a Christian? And I'm going to tell you, the mistake that Christians are making is we're, we're establishing radio stations and television stations and podcasts and writing books and trying to be louder than those folks. We're trying to out-talk them. That ain't what the book says. The book doesn't say out-talk them. You know, every time there's a new program on Fox or MSNBC, you need to get a, a new program on the Trinity Network. Turn off the Trinity Network anyway. That ain't what the book says. The book says, do some good. Actually, let them talk. They're going to keep talking. They're going to be ignorant. They're going to be foolish. They're going to accuse the church. They're going to try to use the church. They're gonna try, and this is the dangerous thing about politics. You, you, you never win an encounter. If, you, if you're a local church getting involved in politics, particularly at the level of endorsing politicians and endorsing political parties, you are never going to be at the head of that party. You're always going to be the tail. You're always going to be used for some worldly purpose rather than some godly purpose. And so, and so our point is not to out-talk folk, it's to outdo folks in love, in goodness, in mercy, in justice, so that when they look at us, as verse 12 said, you know, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, what? They will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the same idea applied to government and politics. If you do good and keep doing good, make that your calling card, some people are going to have to shut up. The mouths of foolish people spewing ignorance will be closed. Then who can be heard? Well, then the wisdom of God can be heard. Then the voice of God can be heard. The clutter and the clamor will be stopped and the truth will come through. That's what God calls us to. If you want to know how we should act this political season, what we should do this political season, we should praise God for ordaining authority. We should recognize that God uses human government. We should do our best to participate in a just society. And we should just get busy about doing good and trust that God will do what he said in closing the mouths of those who don't believe. That's all it is. That's all it is. It's something every Christian can and should do. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, maybe you have got us confused. Maybe you have seen so much talk on the news or in, in, in magazines about evangelicals and Christians and they're all Trumpists or they're all this and, and, and maybe you're like, I don't want anything to do with this Jesus or at least this Christianity because these folks I see on the news, man, they, these people don't love nobody. They don't do nothing good for nobody. They, 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 ooh, they, work, they were climbing the walls at the, at the thing. Well, first of all, that wasn't us. Let's be real clear. I don't think there was any ARC members down there. Right? <laughs> and not only is it not us, but beloved, it's not Jesus. 
It's not Jesus. Listen, I, I recognize that since the time of Judas and since the time of Peter, there have been followers of Jesus who have not always made Jesus look good. Hey, 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 look, and, and if you follow me home and hang out with me today, I'm going to do something later today that won't make Jesus look good. I, I'm, I'm fallen. I'm a sinner. Um, I'm not perfect. No, nobody in this room is perfect. None of the Christians in this room is per, are perfect. In fact, it's recognizing that, that that really gave us our first chance to become Christians. We, we recognize that we weren't perfect. We, we rebelled against authority, right? Mom and dad told us to do something. We did something else right? That was rebelling against the authority that God had put in our lives, and, and God called that sin. It was a breaking of one of his commandments to honor mother and father. And at some point, we became self-aware enough to know it's like, yo, that was wrong. And that was not only wrong in terms of how we treated our parents, but we were able to sort of trace it back to the one who gave authority to our parents. That was actually wrong against God, and, and then mercifully, God began to give us the ability to see other ways in which we rebelled against authority, from trying to get away with speeding to cheating on a test in school uh, to not reporting everything on our income taxes to, I mean, it's just all kinds of things, right? And we came to this conclusion. We're sinners. I, we've been telling ourselves that we're good people. And yes, we do treat some people nicely, but us a whole lot of other people we don't like. We're not perfect in love either. We are sinners. And God mercifully showed us something, that the solution to our sin was not in us. The solution to our sin was not in us having more authority and doing what we wanted to do. In fact, that was at the heart of sin, that we were doing what we wanted to do going our own way and refusing God's authority, the solution to sin was actually submitting to the authority of another, namely God. That The solution was declaring that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is King of kings, that he is, as he said in Matthew 28, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, and, and recognizing that, oh, no, 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 the way back to wholeness, the way back to humanity, the way back to God is submitting in faith to the authority of Jesus as our Lord. That in fact, he not only made us, but he died for us and purchased us with his blood. And he was raised from the grave three days later, and now we are called to bow our knees in reverence and submission and honor and obedience to this Lord. And everyone who confesses him as Lord will be saved from the wrath of God that we read about a moment ago, from the judgment of God against sinners, that that was the solution to flee to the one with all authority. If you're here this morning, you're not yet a Christian. Maybe, maybe, think about this today, maybe the reason you're not a Christian is you don't want to live under God's authority. I mean, when you strip it all away, when you strip away your questions about what about people who've never heard, or you strip away your questions about this thing or that thing, and you get down to the bottom of it, maybe right down there at the rock bottom of it, you just want to do what you want to do. And you, and you don't want to do what God has called you to do. And you're resistant to his authority. You will know that that's the case because you're resistant to other authorities. And he's the one who has ordained them all, right? And so the thing to do then, if that's the case, is just confess it to God. Be humble and admit it. God, I, I, I want to go my own way. I want to do my own thing. And if you recognize that that's not right, confess that to God. That, God, that's, it's wrong. It's not right. It's sin. I'm rebellious. And once you confess it, turn from it. God, I don't want to live this way anymore. I, I realize I actually deserve your judgment, but I want your love. I want your forgiveness. I want a new life which you promised to give if I had faith in your son, Jesus Christ. And I'm going to trust you by trusting Jesus that you will give to me what you promise. Forgiveness, eternal life, righteousness peace, reconciliation, hope, all under 
your rule, your authority. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved and have a kingdom and a king that never fails and that shall not end. Authority is for our good. God's authority is for our greatest good. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Be saved. Christian, keep trusting. Keep trusting as we go through this election season and as we engage with institutions. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you so much that you have been so kind as to leave us these reflections of your beauty and your power and your legitimacy as Lord and Sovereign in the institutions that we encounter. We pray that you would help us to see uh, something of your goodness and mercy in human government. We pray that you would help us to engage our government with faith and hope and love. And we pray that we would be people who exercise authority and, and submit to authority uh, in the ways that you have designed us to and that we would flourish beneath it, that, that wives would flourish beneath the headship of their husbands, that children would flourish beneath the, the leadership of their parents, that citizens, we would flourish as we submit to government, uh, that in the workplace, Lord, we would abound in uh, in, in blessing and fruitfulness as we honor and submit to those who are in authority in the workplace, in every human domain, Lord, in the classroom, uh, walking across the street, wherever we encounter your authority, we pray, O oh Lord, that it would be used righteously and legitimately for the blessing not only of ourselves, but of our neighbors, our family, and friends. And most of all, Lord Jesus, help us to recognize your rule and your authority in our lives so that when we call you Lord, it's legitimate. So that when we call you Master, we mean it. Help us, O Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.